All right. Brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 16. As we read verses 1 through 12, as we'll make reference uh, during the message, this passage has a, has a sister passage, a sister telling of this incident in Mark chapter 8. And there are some nuance differences in each telling because the purpose of Matthew and the purpose of Mark was a little different. And so the details they include are a little different. Nonetheless, this telling and Mark 8 are synonymous incidents, synonymous, telling, synonymous tellings of this incident. So please, let's give ear to what the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has for us here. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them. And departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet remember? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the living God endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for your presence here with us by your spirit. Thank you for granting that we should call on the name of Jesus. Lord, protect and preserve us from a seed of unbelief that if left intact would grow and blossom and flower. Grant, O oh God, that we would indeed watch and beware. For Christ's sake, we pray this. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, um, do you have anyone in your life with whom you 
try or have tried with some degree of persistence to, to share the gospel with them, to communicate spiritual truth or realities to them, and they just refuse to accept it? Do you have anyone in your life like that? Um, or maybe to back it up, you, you, you give all these reasons. You've shared all these reasons and all these evidences of, of why belief in Christ is both reasonable and rational, and they just will not accept it. Have you ever had that? Is there someone in your life like that now? And they just, it doesn't matter what you say, what evidence you present, what rationale you, you explain, what nothing goes through. It's, it's like dropping a seed on a hard path, on a piece of concrete, and it just bounces. For every evidence you present, for every rationale you propose, it's like an objection just pops up. Objections one after the other, as fast as you can answer them, they have another one. Have you ever heard someone like this then turn around and say, oh, I, I, I really want to believe and I would believe if, 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 if only I can be presented with a single shred of evidence. You ever heard people like that? And they, and they, and they act like that and they say that and they, and they try to present themselves like that, like they're just looking for a single shred of evidence. You mean besides the mountain of evidence behind you that you've just discarded and refused to admit as evidence. Now that's one sort of unbelief. That hardened, recalcitrant, committed obstinance that comes from not wanting to submit to the will of God. From not wanting to obey Psalm 2 and kiss the Son. They want to, in the words of Psalm 2, cast off the Lord and his chains. That hardened commitment results in that kind of stubborn recalcitrance. And if you've ever marveled at that, if you've ever marveled at how, frankly, how absurd unbelief can look in practice, understand that our Lord, too, marveled at unbelief and those who were committed to unbelief. It's scandalous because it represents a complete shutting down of the mind, a complete stopping up of the ears, a willful closing of the eyes. They are that committed to unbelief. And it's one thing to understand that this is simply the result of the doctrine of total depravity. We, we as, as good Calvinists articulate the doctrine of, of total pravi- depravity that, that sin affects all of our parts 
and that we love our sin and that John reminds us that, that people love the darkness and not the light, uh, that the mind of the flesh is hostile to the things of God, that we are by nature enemies of God. It, it's one thing to acknowledge this. It's one thing to believe it deeply. But yet in the seeing of it in another person, it can still be amazing to witness it. But yet, brothers and sisters, oftentimes extreme examples are there to underscore the basic point that there's a trajectory that will ultimately culminate in something that looks like this, but we must beware because the flowering thing that you see didn't just miracle itself overnight. There was a long series a long progression that got a person to that. And so, I, I've never understood why so many Christians um, challenge, challenge the idea that God will sovereignly interact with a person, that God will sovereignly interrupt a person's life. Because if it's true that we are by nature objects of wrath, if it's true that we are spiritually dead, if it's true that we love the dark, if it's true that our minds are hostile to God, and that though, though we, most of us aren't pushing old ladies into the street and most of us aren't, aren't killing babies and stuff, nonetheless, we're on a trajectory, naturally speaking, along the path of sin that culminates in death. And that the only way that gets changed is if there's a divine interruption of that. That chain has to get broken. Because every sin is like a seed. You take that seed and it gets planted and it gets watered and it grows and it grows and it grows. It's, it's nothing to run over a little sapling sticking out of the ground. But let it grow and let it harden and let it thicken. And it becomes a tree that if you hit it, not only will it not move, but it will destroy your vehicle and possibly kill you. And so we must beware, we must... Be on the lookout. Because sin grows. Brothers and sisters, our, our only hope for this is that God will interrupt our lives. That God will break that chain. That God will step in and be sovereign. The idea that God is a gentleman and would never infringe on the sovereign free will of an individual is, is madness. Because the, the unequivocal and repeated teaching of Scripture is that, is that if God leaves someone alone, that path without exception remains the path that the person walks. 
a person will only ever always freely choose to continue down that path. They will only always ever continue along the trajectory that leads to death because their mind, their will is bent on it. We need God. He's our only hope. But aside from the belief, the unbelief, I should say, that we see in hardened, recalcitrant unbelievers who just refuse to acknowledge or accept evidences, what about our own unbelief? We all struggle with it. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Because in all of us, there's a spiritual war raging. In all of us, the new man fights with the flesh. And none of us are sanctified fully, entirely in this life. And so all of us will flounder from time to time. How, how often to test our level of unbelief how, how often have we had evidences of God's grace, of God's provision, of God's tender mercies, of God's loving kindness, of God's commitment to giving us all things? How many times have we had God lavish those evidences upon us? And yet, it's almost like they roll off of us like water off the back of a duck. And then every time something negative happens, every time, our first inclination is not, God will provide. Our first inclination is, oh no! Does God not love me? God's abandoned me. God hates me. I must be cursed. Is that not what we do? Maybe not so melodramatically, at least not out loud. How is it that we can experience a litany of blessing and yet as soon as a hardship comes, our first inclination is always, oh no! Because that spirit at work within us to produce that is one and the same with the spirit at work in the Pharisees that we tisk tisk that led them to see and experience things and still say, we seek a sign from heaven. Are you kidding me? Hence, this passage shows that spiritual blindness, like the Pharisees had, is on the same trajectory as the spiritual amnesia that the disciples had. The spiritual amnesia that, frankly, I have. And I would dare to suggest that potentially you have. 
You see, a great danger to us is that we could see the work of God in our lives and the lives of others around us. We could see the, the work of God in our church, but by our own lack of faith, we could fail to understand and benefit from what we see. And that we could therefore operate from a fundamental core belief that if left unchecked could completely derail our faith. People don't grow up in the church and become full-fledged worldlings overnight. There's a series of events, a progression that leads there. Which is why Jesus, in this passage, the imperatives are given to the disciples. To believers, right? To his apostles. The foundation of the church. And that warning is watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Watch and beware. In the sister passage of Mark 8, Mark is not writing to a Jewish audience, so he substitutes Sadducees for Herodians. And they were different, but the Sadducees and the Herodians oftentimes were in cahoots. The Pharisees were the religious conservatives, the fundamentalists of the day. They loved the law, and more importantly, they loved the traditions from the fathers, from the rabbis. But they were, in one sense, you would say, spiritually orthodox. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in the coming Messiah. They believed in spiritual realities. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were Hellenists, which is why they were oftentimes in cahoots with the Herodians who were, who were just Roman-imposed, uh, and it was only the, the power of Rome that kept them in position. And they were basically worldlings who had a cynical use for religion. That it was great for controlling and shaping a populace, but the Sadducees were basically what we in our vernacular would call theological liberals. They, they really denied spiritual realities. There's no resurrection from the dead. There's no angels. There's, I mean, come on. And they were totally comfortable with the attainments, the observations, the, the blessings of Hellenistic culture. And so because of where they stood on the spectrum, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they hated each other. They hated each other probably more than Republicans hate Democrats and vice versa. They did not get along, which they aren't oftentimes pictured together in the Gospels. In fact, almost all of Jesus' interactions with religious authorities up to this point are Pharisees because they were 
conservatives and they valued the traditions. And the Sadducees were much more about real politic. Which is why it's interesting that you see them together here. And this is only one of a few times where they are together. They're here together. Neither of them like Jesus. And that's what unites them in this moment. But they're both radical unbelievers in Jesus. And he warns the disciples to beware. But notice where the warning comes. He doesn't wrap up the episode of interacting with the Pharisees and the Sadducees in in, in verse 4 by turning to his disciples and saying, beware that leaven. He, He doesn't make a comment then. This is several hours, perhaps even days later, when they reached the other side of the Sea of Galilee that they were going to, and it's been this journey, and they forgot to bring bread. And it's only then that Jesus says to beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And to fast forward to verse 12, when they figure out, when they finally realize that leaven refers to the teaching of theirs, it's important to understand that in that moment, Jesus warns them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees because they've just encountered a hardship. (gasps) We forgot bread. Now, what is it about the teaching of the Pharisees that would have caused Jesus in that moment to say, beware the leaven of the Pharisees? I mean, I thought the Pharisees and about washing hands and, and, you know, not working on the Sabbath. I mean, what does that have to do with anything about we forgot to bring bread? But yet Jesus doesn't just say it once. He says it twice. To beware the leaven. Understand this. When it says beware the teaching in verse 12, the teaching That Greek word is didache. It doesn't refer to the act of teaching, to to the educational process by which someone learns information or learns something. It's referring to the thing, the body of information that is taught. Okay, so when you're talking about the thing that's taught, the stuff that's being taught, there's a couple things. We usually think of the formal precepts, the formal propositions. So, you know, the, the, the formal proposition is there's one God and three persons. We teach the Trinity. We, we teach the formal proposition of the, the inerrancy of God's word. Okay, those, those facts that we want remembered and, and absorbed. But there's something more fundamental that has to be taught first. And this is the soft, this is the squishy, this is the enculturation part. In any culture, before you can teach things like democracy is important, before you can teach things like women should have the right to vote, that that we should be allowed to vote, that before you can teach the principles, 
you first have to communicate the interpretive lens, the grid, the understanding of reality that gives coherence and meaningfulness to any of the information you want to teach. So for example, it used to be taught, no hats indoors. It used to be taught, you open the door for women and an elderly. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that it used to be taught. Because within the framework that was in play at the time, those things that were taught made sense. But nowadays, there's a different framework at play. And so for many people, opening the door for a woman is, is not a good thing. It's, it's a bad thing. That's just an example. Before the thing taught can make sense, there's first and foremost the interpretive grid that must be communicated so that all those facts make sense. Does that make sense? And when you think about the fact that Jesus says, beware the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and, and they're both so different. Their formal teachings were so different. And then in Mark, he talks about the Herodians, which are different still. I'm led to wonder, what teaching is he talking about? And what's the common thread between Pharisee, Sadducee, and worldly Herodian. What's, what's the common thread? Well, brothers and sisters, the common thread is, I think, pointed out for us by none other than the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, when he says this, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world... Why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So here Paul identifies the religious asceticism, the religious rigor of the Pharisees as worldly and man-made. The Herodians, we've already seen, had absolute no regard for the traditions and the laws and the customs of the people of God, they were flamboyantly worldly. The Sadducees walked, they would say, the middle way. They were like Anglicans, the middle way. But it was the way of religious cynicism and utilitarianism, not of genuine belief which we see likewise 
is worldly. So the, the reason then that Jesus says to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is because the, the perspective out of which their entire system floats is the world. Externals. The stuff you can see, the stuff you can hear, the stuff you can smell, the stuff you can taste, and the stuff you can touch. The Pharisees expressed it by the fact that they insisted on the externals and the stuff being perfect, perfect, but with very little regard for the immaterial. You see it in the Sadducees and the Herodians that they were licentious and wanton, seeking pleasure and position. In both cases, the elevation of the gaze never rises above this world and its concerns. And that's why Jesus tells the disciples the moment they are confronted with a little hardship, we forgot some bread, to beware. Because in those moments of hardship, each and every one of us must resist the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that leaven of worldliness that is tempted to think in terms of only what I can see, what I can hear, what I can taste, what I can touch. And that is why you and I struggle when we experience hardships of any kind. Oh no, because that hardship is something that we can see, hear, taste, smell, or touch. And our gaze would be limited by that leaven to these worldly considerations. And it will allow us not to elevate our gaze to remember all the good that God has done for us. So the religious leaders pretending to be open-minded demand a sign of Jesus and of course, he responds with the same words he gave them back in chapter 12. No sign will be given you except that of the prophet Jonah. And as we reminded back then in chapter 12, the sign of the prophet Jonah is the man Jonah himself, who, who was presumed dead, who by all accounts should have been dead, and here he is. That Jesus has given them sign after sign after sign, and they won't believe, well, now all that you've got coming left is me. Fast forward to the... Disciples, the disciples needed to hear because of their own spiritual amnesia. They were tempted to think in terms only of the problem. And they had forgotten. Not, not forgotten in the intellectual. There wasn't something wrong with their brain. They didn't have all, early onset Alzheimer's. No, when Jesus jogs their memory, they, rem, they remember. In fact, in, in the Mark account, Jesus interrogates them. How many baskets of leftovers did we have? And they spit out the answer. They knew. 
but they didn't. In the heat of the moment, it didn't matter that lack of bread is a relatively small problem. It's not like you're going to just die instantaneously if you don't eat a meal when you're hungry. I know, I know some, of, some of you might think you're going to die immediately, but I promise you, if you miss a meal, you're not going to die. But it prompted a crisis for them because in the heat of the moment, they, they forgot all that God had done for them. And so what does Jesus do? He warns them, beware. And we need to take Jesus' warning seriously because the Bible records on numerous occasions people's faith becoming shipwrecked by concerns about this life. But then after warning, Jesus recounts. He reminds And he calls them to reflect. Remember the 5,000 and how much bread we had left over? Remember the 4,000 and how much bread we had left over? And, And the reflection on this point should have been precisely, is the lack of bread right now any problem at all? No, not at all. Because if Jesus can supply bread and create matter, well, who can, in fact, they should have been happy they didn't have bread. It meant a lighter load. What, what, I mean, I'd be like, Jesus, why should we pack anything? You just, we'll just have an easy walk and you just, you just make whatever we need. I like to think I would say that, but really I would be, where's the bread? Because I'm weak. And I'm forgetful. And Jesus reminds. In fact, God's word is full of admonitions, exhortations, and I would say pleadings to remember. Guess how many times we're told in Scripture to remember? To remember. To remember. One hundred eighty. Six times. Because none of us are any better than these disciples here. We're tempted to look at them and go, what a bunch of, what a bunch of clowns. I mean, they just, they just had this miracle and they forget. We all forget. We all forget. If we are not remembering by recounting, by retelling, And by reflection, we will forget. And we have to keep remembering the work of God in our lives. Because we're going to be faced with trials each and every day. And if we forget every single day what God has done for us, then every single day we run the risk of having our faith derailed by the tentacles of unbelief. So beware. And remember. And I want you to rejoice. Notice the difference of response here. Jesus does not address the religious leaders with, hey guys, think of all the stuff I've done. Come on. Remember, you were there. I did this. How does Jesus respond? 
a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. No sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And it says he turns and departs. But how does he interact with the disciples? And their stumbling, bumbling way when we don't have any bread and, you know, beware and what, what's he talking about? <laughs> does he say, forget it, you clowns are hopeless. I'm going to get 12 new apostles. I'm out of here. No. How does Jesus interact? He gently reminds, even his rebuke is gentle. And he basically leads them by the hand to help them connect the dots. Our Savior is gentle to his sheep. You and I, we're like the disciples. We struggle with spiritual amnesia all the time. And if you're one of his sheep, He's gentle. So rejoice. Our Lord loves you. And he wants you to bring to mind his faithfulness. So that when you have those moments of hardship, your faith isn't at risk of being derailed by a budding worldly mindset that limits the gaze to what you can perceive with the senses but rather draw from the well of grace that God has lavished upon you and say, you know what? God has met every single need of mine from then until now, and every time there's been a hardship, he's been with me to carry me, to push me, to pull me, whatever it takes to get me through. So this trouble now, this trouble will be like none of the other troubles. Because my Jesus is bigger. My Jesus is better. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the gentleness with which you remind us of the importance of remembering and reflecting on your good, gracious work in our lives, the provision that you have lavished upon us, and for the warning to avoid this worldly mindset that will manifest itself in different ways, but the commonality is this world and this age and these principles. Lord, forgive us for our spiritual amnesia. Grant that we would be gracious yet clear with those who seem to resist your reign. Grant that we would be gracious, kind with others inside the household of faith. And we ask that when we are provided opportunities to help our brothers and sisters remember, remember in their moment of hardship, that we would do so with compassion knowing that we are no different when we have hardship. Be with us and see us safely home. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen.